Hello, I'm Zeb Neuwirth and welcome to Creating a New Healthcare, a podcast series for healthcare leaders who are interested in fresh perspectives, new ideas and bold solutions on how to advance the creation of a customer-oriented, value-based and humanistic system of health. The views I express on this podcast are solely my own and do not represent the views of any other person or organization. Folks, most of us have little understanding of employee health benefits design, and even less of us have an understanding of value-based employee health benefits design. I have to admit that although part of my day job crosses over into this arena and I've spent a bit of time on it, I find that because I don't focus on it every day, I'm still somewhat confused by the complexity of it all. Our guest today, Francois Debrant, has spent his career, his entire career focused on these sets of issues and will hopefully shed some light as well as reduce some of the complexity for us today. Now, before I introduce Francois, I'm going to make a request of you. If you listen to this podcast and you find value in it, I'd like you to do a couple of things. First of all, please uh, go and rate the podcast and submit some comments. Uh, it just increases the visibility of the podcast. And also, if you if you enjoy this podcast and you benefit from it, please forward it to friends either on your LinkedIn or Twitter or your professional listserv accounts. You know, I have to say thank you to those of you who have already been doing this over the past few weeks and months. Uh, I really appreciate you taking a moment to help spread the podcast and spread the word on creating a new healthcare. So I am so excited to speak to Francois. Francois Debron serves as the Senior Vice President of Episodes of Care at Signify Health. He leads customer development of the Medicare Advantage, self-insured employer and commercial payer markets. He has spent uh, two decades working to transform the US healthcare system by improving incentives for providers and consumers in order to encourage value-based decision-making and healthcare. Now, prior to joining Signify Health, he served as VP of Alturum. Uh, from 2006 to 16, he was executive director of the Healthcare Incentives Improvement Institute, a not-for-profit company that was designing programs to motivate physicians and hospitals to improve the quality and affordability of healthcare delivery. The organization, which actually merged with Altarum in 2017, was responsible for the Bridges to Excellence program and the Prometheus Payment program, which compensate and reward clinicians that focus on episodes of care and performance measures. Francois holds a master's degree in economics and finance from the University of Paris and a master's degree in business administration from the Tuck School of Business Administration at Dartmouth College. And before we jump in, I just have to say on a personal professional note, I have uh, listened to Francois speak countless of times at conferences across the country. He was uh, a visionary and uh, so forward thinking in what he was doing and just uh, such a privilege and a pleasure to be able to actually speak with you, Francois, and to share your thoughts with uh, the audience on creating new healthcare. How are you doing today, Francois? I'm doing great and I really appreciate the opportunities of my pleasure. I'm not sure how many people are familiar with the Bridges to Excellence program and the Prometheus Payment program. They were landmark programs uh, when they were created, and they're they're just huge. Um, I just wonder, before we jump in, if you could just say a word about those. 
Sure, and I and I think it's um, uh, germane to the conversation we're going to have because my uh, career in healthcare actually started uh, working um, at GE uh, in corporate benefits and focusing on trying to encourage uh, GE employees, retirees, their family members, uh, which at the time amounted to about seven hundred and fifty thousand people, so roughly the the population of the state of Vermont. Um, and to try to make them uh, or encourage them to make more uh, value-based decisions, turn them into active consumers, so to speak. And that journey really started with GE and a lot of other large companies joining forces to launch uh, the LeapFrog Group, which uh, exists uh, today. Um, and that was focused, as you know, on identifying um, hospital safety and encouraging facilities to fill out a survey on a voluntary basis to determine how well they were managing patients and really how effective they were at reducing potential harm. And so we then proceeded to launch Bridges to Excellence, which was designed to be a little bit analogous, uh, but focused on ambulatory care and mostly physician services. And, and again, addressing an area that was really important and still is to uh, many employers, which is the management of chronic conditions. And so again, in a collective way uh, with the same um, and more uh, large companies that were supporting the LeapFrog Group, we picked uh, specific geographic areas where these employers had concentrations of employees and encouraged physicians uh, to report again on a voluntary basis um, on how well they were doing in managing chronic conditions such as diabetes, coronary artery disease, uh, heart failure, COPD, asthma, et cetera. And their assessment and their success at demonstrating that they were uh, doing a good job at managing those conditions resulted in uh, getting an additional payment by these large companies, what today is commonly known as pay for performance. Um, but in, in, in those days, you know, was kind of thought of as something different. And that then led us to uh, the Prometheus payment model, which was really the attempt to more fundamentally restructure payment in healthcare, and really mostly because the conversations we were having with hospitals around LeapFrog and physicians around Bridges to Excellence um, seemed to uh, raise a very common issue uh, amongst the clinicians in, in either the physician practices or the facilities, which is, you know, we're not paid to reduce harm. We're not paid to better manage patient care. Uh, we're not paid to Im improve and optimize chronic conditions. And, and it was true, and it still is true in FIFA service. Uh, you're simply paid for the uh, a little bit of money or a little more money for each incremental service that you get, irrespective of its, of its value, intrinsic value. And we'll get to that as we dive into value-based insurance design, value-based payment. But fundamentally, FIFA service does not distinguish between high-value care, low-value care, uh, or harmful care. And so that, unless you kind of get out of the FIFA service system and move more to what everyone calls today value-based payments, um, you can't really address this, this fundamental issue of what do you want the physicians, the clinicians in the country uh, to focus on. And if you do want them to focus on optimizing patient care, then you need to pay them in such a manner that um, will continuously encourage them or send in other ways if it will not discourage them from doing what they feel is good for the patient. That was just a brilliant summary of that work. It seems so commonsensical that you would expect that 
providers, physicians and other providers and, and provider systems are incentivized for quality, uh, but that is predominantly not the case. And also just the basic notion, you're talking about transparency of price and quality, which you would almost take as a given, and yet it's not at all far from it. And I just, uh, again, just thinking back, uh, how many years you've been doing this when the Bridges to Excellence program came out and Prometheus came out, how visionary it was and how landmark it was. And in some sad way, it, it still is somewhat visionary because it, it hasn't been manifested, I think, in the way it needs to be for our communities. And I actually think for our provider communities as well. But let's start with the, the issue of the problem or challenge, the why, if you will, before we get into some solutionizing. In our correspondence uh, leading up to this interview, you wrote to me, and I'll quote, there is no real competition for value in the healthcare market. There's competition for revenue, competition for market share, and competition for billboards, but no real competition for value. So Francois, could you say more about that? And, and your intro really, I think, set this up. Why at this point in time, in this day and age, why aren't more providers in systems and networks that are really putting value-based payment and competition in, into play? Yeah, well, so what's interesting is that it's not for lack of wanting. I've said this before, but I, I, I always think it's, it's important to remind um, uh, everyone, uh, whether they're in healthcare or outside of healthcare, that clinicians wake up in the morning uh, with a sense of mission if you know, they're not completely burnt out. Um, and that mission is to care for patients. That's why they spend, uh, like you did, uh, years in professional training, clinical training as a medical resident, et cetera, to become um, someone whose skills can help save another individual's life or ease their pain, uh, make them feel better physically, emotionally, uh, mentally. And, and, and so you don't wake up thinking about doing patient harm or providing low value care services. But the moment you step foot on the floor until you get back into bed that evening, you're really hit with an onslaught of incentives that come from the organization you belong to, the payers that pay those organizations, and to an extent, the patients themselves that drive you away from that mission. And so what those forces that are driving you away from that mission are the same forces uh, that uh, today create the competition around revenue instead of value or around just simply grabbing more of the total pie of, of healthcare dollars um, as opposed to really looking at driving uh, better outcomes. And that's, again, ingrained within two dynamics that exist on both the supply side and the demand side, the supply side being the providers, the physicians, the hospitals, the health systems, and the demand side being uh, consumers. And, and on the supply side, it is this undifferentiation of revenue that is simply linked to, to the volume of services that are being delivered and not to the underlying value of services. And on the consumer side, there's a similar dynamic 
in the sense that benefit design and the way most consumers access healthcare and the terms under which, the financial terms under which they access healthcare also do not give them the ability to distinguish between high value and low value care. And I'll give you a specific example or two specific examples because I think it speaks to the heart of the problem on both sides. So on the demand side, take a patient with a chronic illness or, or multiple chronic illnesses. That individual at the beginning of the benefit year, if they have what is today the most common type of benefit design with a deductible and coinsurance, essentially has a financial hurdle to overcome before uh, they have to stop paying out of their own pocket for care that is really necessary in the management of their underlying condition and to avoid the onset of longer term complications. And that's high value care, right? It, it, it's the care that the physicians are trying to give to the patient, but that there may be hesitance on the part of the patient, not because they don't think it's the right thing to do, but because financially they have to pay out of it out of pocket and they may not simply be able to do that. A second example that's at the other end of the spectrum is that if you want a spinal fusion uh, surgery, uh, you will max out your deductible, you will max out your out-of-pocket expense, and as a result of which you'll be completely price insensitive to the majority of the costs associated to that procedure. And so from that perspective, it's almost the opposite issue, which is, well, if I get that procedure, I'm actually getting my quote unquote money's worth, but mm -hmm. I paid into my health benefit plan. And now it's going to kick back to the tune of eighty, ninety thousand dollars uh, for the payment of a procedure that has a relatively low uh, therapeutic value, except in certain circumstances. So the demand side has warped incentive. And of course, on, on the supply side, we talked about uh, uh, the, the challenge of having a payment that's simply linked to the service that you're delivering, whether it's high value or low value. So on both sides, you have this uh, inherent disconnect between what should be done by both parties, what ultimately both parties want to do, um, but are driven away from because the structure of the financial incentives that drive the economic behavior uh, really is contrary to delivering good care, generally speaking. What an interesting picture on the patient side or consumer side. You know, initially you're incentivized, strongly incentivized to underutilize care and which is so harmful uh, when you think about basic primary preventive care or just, you know, any care that you need. And then once you've reached a certain limit, now you're incentivized to overutilize care, which can be just as harmful and uh, counter not only to yourself, but clearly to the system at large in terms of costs and waste and overuse of unnecessary procedures, tests. And so if you uh, think about it, Zeph, the, the impact on competition and, and where it has an impact on competition is that if you're a, if you're a physician practice, and you actually want to compete on value and you believe in price transparency and you believe in all of those things. And you're going to publish the fact that you can deliver great chronic care for a patient who has diabetes and depression, et cetera, for $6,000 a year. What that patient will see is, oh my gosh, 
um, I'm going to have to pay for at least half of that out of pocket. That's a lot of money. And do I really need all of that stuff? And on the flip side, if you're a, a provider um, who has a very expensive, uh, very high priced services and um, uh, the cost of the surgery that in one instance, in one facility would be 20,000, but in yours is 60 or 70 or $80,000, you know full well that the vast, vast majority, if not all of the plan members and patients that will walk through your door will be completely insensitive to that marginally higher price because they'll have maxed out on, on their out-of-pocket expense. So it doesn't matter to the consumer whether it's $20,000 or $80,000 they don't pay the difference. The plan pays the difference. So that sets up a competition for all the, the, the wrong reasons as opposed mm -hmm. to the competition around all the right reasons. So if we were going to change the game and, you know, I think in, in the emails that you sent me, you talked about three ingredients for creating competition, changing the competition and, and creating competition for value could you share what the underpinnings of those three things should be? And then how would an employer create a benefits design or have a benefits design with those three criteria? Yeah. So again, it, it's, if you want to change both the supply and the demand side, you need an alternative payment model um, that that's going to effectively not drive the provider in the wrong direction. And I say that, because I, I don't believe fundamentally, and it's not just me, I mean, there's been tons of studies that have shown that for most professionals, it's not a question of optimizing incentives. It's really a question of take the stuff out that makes it difficult for you to do what you would otherwise want to do, what your professional code would dictate you to do. So you need to have an alternative payment model that, that takes that stuff away. Mm -hmm. On the benefits side, similarly, you, you need to flip the incentives on their heads so that back to my example on, on high value care chronic condition, there's low or no cost sharing. On the flip side, if you've got a procedural episode um, where you can get the same procedure done at a high quality facility for $30,000, um, and that same procedure is priced at $60,000 at a just higher priced facility, even if it's high quality, then you, you get to pay a portion of the difference. And if you think about it, that kind of benefit design is effectively what exists today in Rx benefits. Um, and in, in particular, between the difference between generic and, and brands when there's a generic substitute. And it's worked incredibly well <laughs> in getting the vast majority of individuals to switch to generic. And I'm not saying all care is generic. What I am saying is that there are ways in which you can structure the benefit design that encourages high value care, discourages low value care. And you marry both of those things with transparency because you need transparency on both sides for a market to work. And the final ingredient is that when we talk about transparency in this context, it needs to be at a level that makes sense to a consumer. If I'm a woman and I'm having a baby, that's the event that matters to me. Not total cost of care, what may happen if this, that, I'm having a baby. Hmm. Tell me how much my out-of-pocket expense is going to be for having a baby. Explain to me the choices I have in OBs and, 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 and where they, the, 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 my, my baby may be delivered. That's what matters to me. If I'm someone who has diabetes, coronary artery disease, hypertension, and depression, that's my life. 
Tell me what that series of conditions, that set of conditions, and taking care appropriately for that set of conditions is going to cost me during the course of the year. And what are my options? Which providers out there are doing an excellent job in managing those conditions? Um, and then I can go to and, and not be afraid that I'm going to have to spend what amounts to be roughly uh, half of my yearly food budget um, in just being able to manage my chronic conditions you know, which makes absolutely no sense. So there are relatively simple ways that have been proven in the past of being very effective in creating that competitive marketplace. Uh, you just need to pull these ingredients together. And I say you just, clearly it takes a little bit of work, um, but I think the issue really for all of us to discuss is wh why hasn't it happened? I was actually wondering that. <laughs> why hasn't it happened? I mean, you would think that employers would want to have this sort of benefits design that has the transparency on, on price and quality reduces that tremendous incentive and actualization of overuse and high volume and encourages, you know, makes it easier for their employees to find providers that are demonstrating, you know, value and quality. Why don't we see more of that? What's stopping that? Yeah. And this I have to say is, is it has been probably the most um, a frustrating part of my my career because when when you do talk to employers as I I do almost every week if not multiple times a week um, they understand the simplicity um, uh, and appeal of a solution that would encourage the use of high value care discourage the use of low value care encourage the use of high value providers and discourage the use of low value care providers. And in fact, if you look at the types of solutions that employers and their benefit consultants are trying to implement on an ad hoc basis, what we call little point solutions, they're all focused on, on these two poles of trying to drive action on, on the value scale. And they're driven to do these little point solutions because they can't find carriers who will assemble these together. And this is the uh, one of the uh, many incentive misalignments that exist in healthcare. And it's, it's that most carriers don't care because they're not responsible for costs of care. So a lot of individuals, many consumers think, well, the insurance companies are the ones making all the money, they've got all these reserves. You know they can effectively reduce costs of care, or they've got a they've got a vested interest in trying to reduce costs of care. And the issue is that they don't, because at the end of the day, they're not the ones paying the bills. The employers are paying the bills, or the individuals, if the individuals are getting their health care through uh, an exchange. It, it's either the self-insured employer who's paying the cost of care literally out of their own funds because they're self-insured, or the ones who buy a, a premium-based product from a health insurance company. All the costs of care are passed through to the end consumer. And in fact, it gets even worse than that, than, than sometimes the administrative fee that the plan makes can be tied to the total plan cost. So there are all kinds of really warped incentives on the carrier side that says, you know what, the more costs of care increase, the more revenue we also make. So everyone from uh, uh, health plans to, to providers are, are entrenched in this game of more revenue, meaning more costs of care is better uh, because that's <laughs> that helps me grow my revenue base. But the people who pay the price, the individual consumers and the employers um, are the ones who want to change the system, but they're captive 
and held captive by those who control the administrative function of the, of the system, who effectively set the payment and the payment modalities, and also uh, set the way in which the benefits work. So until we have alternative health plans that come and offer these package solutions to employers, um, it's actually difficult to see how the incumbents um, will ever package it in a manner that will create a true competitive marketplace because they have a fair amount to lose if the market truly became competitive. I had also been under the impression that the payers business model was a bit more closely aligned to value-based payment than the provider side of the system. But I think, and in, in, help me out here, but I my recent understanding is that uh, the payers are really uh, third-party administrators uh, for the most part. And uh, so in the bigger scheme of things, uh, reducing the cost actually could harm them financially. Uh, reducing the cost appropriately could harm them financially. And so I think I hear a bit of that in what you're saying. Is that- Yeah, and I, and I wanna I want to be conscious that, you know, in the world of third-party administrators, you've got what are called pure TPAs. So pure third-party administrators who don't own a network, who uh, effectively offer a set of administrative functions to employers, mm -hmm. typically self-insured employers, mm -hmm. and that's benefit administration, uh, claims processing, et cetera. Mm -hmm. um, they're typically, their revenue is purely based on the administration of the plan. And so you'll find that they effectively want to be a lot more innovative and are willing to be a lot more innovative than the carriers who own a network. Uh, because the carriers who own a network are the ones who have uh, oftentimes uh, challenges with, well, what does it mean if we create true competition in the network? Will the network blow up? Will the academic medical centers threaten to leave uh, our network because we're putting them in true competition with us? So it's much more difficult at the carrier level than it is at the third-party administrative level. And, and employers, to I, I would say their discredit, um, haven't uh, been willing to move away from the carriers to the third-party administrators in order to break the cycle. And, and the reason they haven't done that is because the carriers control the networks and the discounts. And unfortunately, and so this, this is where it, it sounds like a giant conundrum circle because you're back to FIFA service, you're back to kind of negotiating discounts for individual fees, and you lose the perspective that the name of the game is not a discount on an individual fee, but it truly is the price of a total episode. And that's what why we've been, and you know, certainly my colleagues and I have been so adamant about changing this unit of accounting and payment from an individual service, which means nothing, really nothing, to a full episode. Let's talk about the price of a full episode, the management of a health event for an individual. Let's get out of the, the, the tyranny of the FIFA service system and the tyranny of the discounts, which freezes employers in place as opposed to encouraging to migrate to alternative solutions. And, and that's really what we're trying to do as a next step, Jeff, is, is show that um, actuarially you can make the move and still come out ahead. Um, and at the same time, give your employees a benefit experience that will truly encourage the consumption of high value care and not the consumption of any care, high value or low value. What is the solution out, or at least what is the first step out of this, you know, sort of almost catch-22 or conundrum, as you say, it's, it's kind of all the stakeholders seem to be kind of locked or frozen into place. And you're saying episodes of care, and I'd love for you to expound on 
what do you mean by episodes of care? You know, does that include beyond surgical episodes to hospital episodes to chronic disease episodes to, you know, primary care uh, episodes of care? I'm just curious what, you know, how you define it and very, very interested to hear, are there examples of this actually already happening and, and working? Yeah, you know, the terminology of episodes is probably uh, more of, um, you know, an inside too much, maybe too much of an inside baseball terminology. The reality is that for us who talk about episodes of care, it's a health event, either an ongoing health event, uh, like a chronic condition, uh, or any other condition that a patient uh, deals with, uh, including pregnancy, <laughs> or a procedure or an acute event. I mean, it's all of the above. And the issue is, is really about how you define that in a way that can resonate with an individual consumer, who again, doesn't think of the world in terms of a lab test, a diagnostic imaging test, a pharmacy a script that I have to pick up, you know, an individual officer, they don't think about it that way. No, what they, they're forced to in the current system, but no one in their right mind, you have a, a health problem. That's what you're thinking about. It's a health problem. In, in our world of, uh, you know, payment, we look at that health problem, that health issue as a continuum around which you can package a price. Why? Because you've got a set of services that need to be delivered for the management of that condition. And it's that set of services that you're essentially pricing um, in a package. So you can call it package medicine, package care, whatever you want to call it. But the concept is for the consumer and for the provider, it's something that makes sense, right? I'm an OB. I deliver babies and I manage pregnancies. So if I can give you a package price that includes the real management of the pregnancy towards optimal outcome, the delivery of the baby, uh, the newborn costs themselves, um, and postpartum care, and that's as a single price package, that means that my focus as an OB is going to be to optimize prenatal care, to ensure that the baby comes to term at a normal baby birth weight, and as much as I can, and as much as the woman who's having the baby is willing, um, encourage uh, the delivery as a normal vaginal delivery. And then on the back end, really manage uh, uh, the care of that woman and the child uh, through the postpartum phase to avoid any complications, including depression, et cetera. It's a completely different ballgame. That's the point, right? Which is, and, 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 and as, a, as again, as a woman, that's what I'm thinking of. You know, I don't think about, oh, pregnancy is one phase and the delivery is another. And then in the mm -hmm. delivery, there's the facility phase and there's the professional services. And by the way, the newborn's on a different bill. And, you know, it, it's, it's craziness from the consumer's perspective. So that's how, and by the way, in terms of examples, yeah, we see this working actually every day. And we see it working on the provider side because they truly think about care in a way that, that is going to optimize the outcomes of their patients. And you know, when you go to them and you say, well, here's the way we're thinking about structuring your payments, like, well, of course, that's great because now I can figure out, you know, how to use uh, my physician assistant more effectively and potentially send uh, um, a, a visiting nurse for, to, to see the patient, you know, who's homebound. Whatever it is that you want to do is contained within your power uh, to deliver care uh, within that package price. And on the consumer side, the ability to make rational decisions about where I should go based on quality measures 
and the price of, of, uh, of the care uh, for that particular provider, uh, again, is something that's been absolutely proven to, to work. So uh, we know the ingredients for success are there. And, and the good news is that we're, we're seeing both hospitals, health systems, physician groups, and third-party administrators, and this is the key, and third-party administrators now willing to come together and offer these uh, different ways of payment, different ways of structuring benefit design um, directly to employers. I love this, and I've never quite seen it this way, this sort of transition from piecemeal medicine to packaged episodes of care. You, you know, you remind me, I, I just had some work done in my house, and that to put in a fireplace. And I thought, you know, I'm just thinking if I had to pay for every screw or every panel they put in, or uh, it would have been just a mess. It was just no, you know, the whole thing. And, you know, there's a fee and, and, but I think, I think it's really analogous. It's a burden, not just to the consumer, but I think it's a tremendous burden to the provider because they have to practice piecemeal medicine. They have to code and bill for every little screw and, and every little piece of, of, of work that they do tests and, and whatnot. I think this packaging into these episodes would really be tremendous value to the providers as well as patients and employers. Question though, um, you mentioned, you know, I could see this in surgeries, I could see this in, in pregnancy, where there is sort of an episode of care, uh, you know, it's time limited. What about getting back to this issue? Can, can it extend to something like diabetes or, or COPD or other, other chronic diseases, hypertension, et cetera, that where there is no time limit to it. Do you see that happening? We do see that happening. And, and, and the time limit is, um, is potentially artificial, but it's, it's calibrated usually to the benefit year of the plan member. Um, uh, and from a payment perspective, uh, let's call it a performance period for uh, the provider. And, and I want to build a little bit on, 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 on your uh, analogy, because um, when we talk about condition episodes in particular, Oftentimes, uh, you know, the policymakers or those who uh, purport to be such uh, come back and say, well, that's only going to encourage fragmentation. Well, first, I remind them, <laughs> I'm not sure we can encourage more fragmentation that exists today. Um, and, and as you package, you, you're de facto reducing fragmentation, at least within the context of what's being packaged. But more importantly, Nothing precludes you, and in fact, this is the way uh, uh, it, it, it can, uh, it is, and should be done, um, is to have a general contractor. So let's take a primary care physician as a general contractor mm -hmm. um, and uh, responsible for the coordination of the care of the patient that the patient's going to get also from a cardiologist and a mental health provider and maybe a nephrologist. And those, those uh, providers themselves have fixed price contracts, a, a portion of the total package. Um, and, it, and it could work very well. And so then you say, well, why not then all total cost of care? Because there's a big difference between uh, creating risk, because ultimately, if you're packaging price, you're creating financial risk. There's a big difference between creating financial risk for um, uh, conditions, procedures, care that is within the direct control of the providers that uh, you're creating risk with and who are accepting that risk 
than uh, to take on risk that could be completely uncontrollable and not um, a function or uh, uh, directly related to the care that the, those providers are doing. So for example, uh, yes, I have depression, I have diabetes, I have hypertension, um, but I may also uh, uh, end up by you know, falling and hurting and, and having a massive hematoma and being hospitalized that has nothing to do with the cardiologist, the primary care physician, or the nephrologist. It's a different health event. Right. And yes, some may say, hey, in a total cost of care model with, with an, an accountable care organization, they're in charge of everything. Okay, they're in charge of everything. Well, how do they delegate that responsibility for the different pieces to the people underneath them? The point being, you know, it's not about one or another. The, 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 the question is not just how you package one thing, but how you create packages with packages and ultimately create an experience for the end user, the consumer that makes sense and also create an experience for the provider that makes sense. Um, and that doesn't lead us to the an, an alternative um, of to FIFA service that now creates so much responsibility for the providers for things that are not under their control um, that they give up uh, and want to mm -hmm. go back to FIFA service. So somewhere in yeah, the yeah. middle, you know, we got to manage right. our way out of where we're at yes. and and meet the providers and the patients where yeah. they're at. That's exactly the way I was understanding you. Is that you know I think what you were arguing for is that uh, the leap to full capitation is is a challenging one. What I heard you say too is, for instance, chronic disease episodes of care could be time-bound by, by literally time-bound by a year. And so yeah. take it year by year or whatever time period. And so very, very helpful. I have to say this, this sort of simplistic analogy, it actually is making sense. The notion of a contractor, and, and again, for anyone who's done any work on their house and having a contractor is a lifesaver. I mean, I don't know, I would never uh, do any housework without getting a contractor because you have all these specialists coming in, you know, from the people doing the floors to the ceilings, to the paint, to the electrician, to the plumbing, to, to the cement pouring. I mean, tons and tons of specialists, but absolutely need that contractor. And, and I, I wonder, I mean, to me, just, you know, pushing this uh, analogy a bit, it seems to me clearly the primary care doctor can play that role, should play that role, I wonder if we're just not seeing enough of that role being played in healthcare, you know, that contractor role. Well, and that's a good point because, uh, in fact, um, many employers now have resorted to uh, doing direct contracts with uh, what's called on-site or near-site primary care clinics in companies like uh, Everside or uh, One Medical, et cetera, have benefited from that because the employers are looking to them to be that primary care hub. Um, and because they have a direct contract, direct relationship, they feel that they can have slightly better control over service level agreements, over quality criteria, et cetera, than just the random primary care physicians that might be part of a carrier's network. So all of these solutions, again, are coming together. And, and I can't um, uh, underscore just the uh, real importance of uh, a package. Right? Mm -hmm. 90% or 99% of employers, I mean, the GEs and the Walmarts and 
you know, the lows are, 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 are really uh, unique in their capabilities of assembling pieces together. The vast majority of all other employers need package solutions. And I think this is where uh, the system has failed them. And when I say the system, the industry has failed them, where, you know, we think we can uh, work with others uh, in the industry to bring these package solutions, which includes advanced primary care and includes uh, you know, the packaged uh, episode payments and centers of excellence and all the things that mm-hmm. make a difference um, in delivering great outcomes for employees, that plus good benefit design. I was going to ask about the centers of excellence. So you have these packages in place, these episodes of care, but what what's the governor, uh, the contractor that's controlling the overutilization, right? So if you have inappropriate utilization of these packages, that's not going to solve the problem not the entire problem. So in your schema and in this, how would that be controlled? Well, that goes right back to condition episodes. It's the contracting around low back pain that matters. Hmm. And if you do that and, and you create a budget around the entirety of low back pain management, which, um, you know, without getting into nauseating detail, but you can think of a package on a population of patients with low back pain that includes an allowance for what would be an appropriate level of surgical care. And so there's a natural incentive for the physicians managing the patient to just appropriately use surgery when it needs to be used, but not overuse it. And you can say the same thing about cardiology and the same thing about pretty much any other uh, clinical category. So moving upstream into condition management and including as part of the package um, the, the normal procedures that end up by um, occurring um, and are appropriate for a fair number of patients, but not for all. That creates your the same effect as you would get essentially as if in capitation, but you're not doing it at the total population, all costs of care level. You're bringing it down to specific conditions. Yeah, no, that's super yeah. helpful. So I understand, that, I mean, there are employers pushing for this and using this. There are states that are moving in this episodes of care direction. Do you have any examples and, and any outcomes? Yeah, so there, there are lots of employers um, and uh, a, a few states, uh, state employee plans in particular, because as you know, now in, in almost every single state in, in the United States, the state employee plan uh, is probably the single biggest purchaser, uh, has the largest amount of employees uh, and covered lives in that particular uh, geography. And so they're looking for ways to uh, do both of the things I mentioned, which is encourage the use of of high value care and encourage the use of high value providers. So uh, a a good example is what's going on in the state of Connecticut uh, with the state employee plan. um, And that's now been going on for um, over a year. Um, And we see the results um, and, and the results are that you have uh, fewer complications of care for employees. You've got um, uh, improved outcomes in maternity. You've got better experience of care for the plan members. And we just had a meeting on uh, recently with the vast majority of the hospitals, health systems, and the physician groups that are participating in the program. And, and the only thing they could um, uh, say is, when are you going to put more, when are you going to get more employers to participate in this effort? Um, and so I think that's the, that's what keeps me jazzed up and keeps me uh, focused on, you know, uh, my continued mission to try to uh, Im- improve healthcare in the, in the United States. I see the enthusiasm of providers who have made that leap into 
value-based payments. They understand the freedom they gain with it, but they also, more importantly, understand that this is the way for them to accomplish their own mission of delivering the kind of care to patients that they actually want to uh, deliver, uh, but that they're oftentimes encouraged not to deliver. So I assume this is what you're doing with your work now at, at Signify and Health. Who are your customers? Who are you looking for if there are employers out there that are listening to this? Or how could they sign up for these sorts of episodes of care? Uh, we work with carriers. We work with third-party administrators. We work directly with employers. Um, and we also work very collaboratively with provider organizations um, uh, in, in, I think, 35 now out of 50 states. And so the message is simple, which is, you know, change doesn't happen <laughs> unless you make it happen. Um, and I know that sounds trite, but that's the truth. Um, and so if you don't change benefit design to, to really create a different dynamic on, on the demand side and you don't change alternative payment models, you can, trick, you, you can kind of try a few different point solutions at the edge and they'll have an effect. But honestly, if you don't assemble the pieces together to create the fundamental dynamic of uh, competition around value uh, instead of what exists today, um, it, it's not, it just simply won't work. Um, and we see it work when the competition takes hold. So, you know, for any employer that um, uh, wants to uh, change the dynamics in the system, yeah, we're happy to help them. And, you know, I think they'll find that there are also some third party administrators um, that are absolutely willing to stand up uh, the set of solutions, uh, package solutions um, that will um, bring all of these elements together. So you're working with employers you're working with states and, and their employees. You're working with healthcare systems to, to help them to do this for their customers. Is that right? That's correct. Yep. It, it's all of the above. And because it takes work on all sides to move um, from what exists today uh, to something better. And we see our role as, as, as really impacting um, mm -hmm. the different sides, both the supply side and the demand side, um, and doing it in a way that, that ends up by being collaborative, that ends up by being uh, 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 beneficial to both parties. And you, you mentioned another stakeholder that I left out, which was, the, as you point out, the insurance carrier has to be involved in this as well. Well, the insurance carrier is involved to the extent that the insurance carrier wants to be involved and wants to provide the employer with the solution set that they're looking for. Um, you know, we found that this is very challenging for many carriers um, and some of them are trying and we're working with some that, that truly are trying, uh, but it is challenging. There's just this inherent nervousness when you're operating a network uh, that the network will blow up in your face mm. if you create competition. And, you, you know, if you're in North Carolina, so yeah. you, you know the dynamics I'm talking about. And it's challenging, you know, it's, mm. it's real. And so when you're, if you're Blue Cross in North Carolina managing uh, a, a complex network in, in uh, North Carolina, uh, can you afford to have uh, the big academic medical centers out of your network? Think about what happened when the state employee plan in your state uh, tried to do some innovation around payment, uh, basically the hospitals got together with the association and said, hell no, we won't go. So the resistance in the market is real. There's no question about it. And there are challenges galore. But I think the solution set exists. And 
it's going to go through third-party administrators, is, is my point. Uh, it, it's very mm -hmm. difficult to see how the carriers um, will eventually, I mean, the carriers will get on board, but they're going mm -hmm. to need to have uh, the, the soil very well toiled mm -hmm. by third-party administrators. That dirt road's got to be paved a little bit. <laughs> um, so you're, you're saying the real kind of entree into this, the forces pushing this are clearly the employers uh, who stand to, and the employees who stand to benefit as well as the TPAs. And unfortunately, the, the other stakeholders are going to be, uh, have to be pulled into this a little bit, or at least the, the path is going to have to be laid down a bit more firmly before they're going to tread on it, is what I'm hearing. Yeah, look, it's like anything else. Um, if, if your entire business model is based on top line revenue, and not necessarily on margin per patient, but really top line revenue, that the more services I build, the more fees I make, the better off I am, then um, uh, pulling away from that uh, addiction uh, to fee for service is, mm -hmm. is very similar to pulling away from any addiction. It's very difficult. And so sometimes it's less difficult for those who aren't um, benefiting as much from uh, that uh, a strong pull of uh, high-priced uh, services, and you know, typically physician physician groups, and I remind physicians and physician groups, and when you look at the total cost of uh, a, a set of condition episodes like diabetes or heart failure or coronary artery disease, or you look even at procedural episodes, the uh, percentage of the total dollars that are spent on uh, in the conditions annually and the procedures for the procedures that go to the managing physicians, the physicians responsible for the care of the patient is at most 20%, at most one out of $5. Typically it's around 15, 15%. So the, the physicians are actually the ones who have the most to gain both financially and professionally by shifting away from the model that exists today. But clearly there are others um, who uh, get the other 85% or 80% mm -hmm. um, who are gonna be challenged. Thank you for saying that. I, I don't know that I've ever heard it said so plainly that, you know, you just said it, physicians probably have, along with patients have the most to gain by getting away from fee-for-service into value-based payment, in part because there's just so much value that they deliver that could be uh, really uh, opened up. And I just think the practice of medicine would be simplified greatly uh, by these packages and episodes of care. I mean, you're doing this, um, and I'm looking for the kind of hope here, and um, if there is, but are there other groups trying to pave the road to value-based payment and, and absolutely and, yeah. absolutely yeah absolutely and 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 look medicare as well so cms in in, in its center for innovation uh, has uh, uh, i think done a lot uh, to try to push the agenda uh, they need to continue obviously and i think it's it's it, it's one of the few bipartisan issues in uh, in, in Washington that we need to continue down uh, this pathway, continue to pave it a little bit more, as, as, as you mentioned. Um, but there are other groups, and we talked to them. In fact, you know, earlier today, I was on a call with a group that 
uh, focuses exactly on this, uh, but at the, uh, what I would call it the retail end of the market. So trying to create packages for um, uh, relatively discrete things, um, but in a way that makes a lot of sense and it makes sense for the providers and the providers actually love it um, mm -hmm. because they have certainty around what they're yeah. uh, going to get from the consumer. And the consumer loves it because instead of worrying about, oh my gosh, you know, uh, is it just a mammogram or is it a mammogram with a biopsy or is it a mammogram with a biopsy or is it a mammogram with a, you know, all the rest. No, let me let me give you a package for that. And and so, yes, we see uh, companies really work hard on innovation. And uh, and and that's that's the exciting part is I think there's been so much, so much more innovation in this field over the past 24, 36 months, despite the pandemic on the kind of vendor side. And then on, on the physician side, you know, the pandemic has also uh, really, I think, accelerated for a lot of physicians uh, the idea that, well, if I get a package price uh, for the management of certain conditions, that means I get monthly recurring revenue for the management mm -hmm. of that patient. Yep. Yes, that's very different. Yep. So lots of, I, we see a lot of enthusiasm around this and uh, uh, I am actually uh, more hopeful than I've been uh, in, in uh, at different stages in, in, in my career because the technical solutions, the ability to scale this out, the willingness of the delivery system, or at least big portions of the delivery system, the continued activism of uh, Medicare and pushing alternative payment, all of that means that uh, there's a lot of wind in the sails. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, well, I, I am so uh, delighted to hear that you're optimistic because you've been in this as an expert for, for literally two decades. And so to hear you say that is fantastic. You know, you mentioned a moment ago, clearly, uh, you know, CMS and CMMI uh, pushing for this. And I, I, you know, what I hear and read now, the vocality is really, really encouraging. You also mentioned another sector, which is the retail sector. And I hadn't really thought about it this way, but let's look at, you know, whether it's CVS or, or Walmart or, or Amazon. I mean, it seems to me they don't have a lot to lose in beginning to sell packages. Is that fantastical thinking or say more, say something about No, it. no, no, that's exactly right. And in fact, again, I think it was last week or uh, CVS announced a doubling down on uh, primary care physicians in uh, their stores in much the same way as Walgreens is now doing uh, in collaboration with Village MD. So I think there's a real sense by these very large uh, organizations that the market is effectively restructuring. And it's restructuring because ultimately the product, which is health insurance, delivered to those who buy it, which are typically employers, uh, the package today doesn't meet the needs of those who it's either too expensive or it has too much in it or not enough or it's structured the wrong way. And at the core, you need that you, you do need that general contractor, the primary care physician. You have to have a pharmacy component. You can't manage chronic conditions without pharmacy component. And so the fact that we're seeing Aetna and, and or CVS, I should say, uh, try to increase their presence in their stores of real primary care, not just you know, a health hub with someone in the back room. Uh, Walgreens essentially dedicating half, half of their stores uh, to physician practices. Uh, Walmart 
uh, uh, similarly in working with organizations like Oak Village, I'm sorry, Oak um, uh, Street. I mean, all of these organizations see that the retail side, uh, meaning the lower end of acuity of patients, uh, is 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 real. Um, and, and, and I think that's partially a, a function of the way benefit designs exist today. But even if you restructure benefit design, you would want to reduce cost sharing down to zero for that higher value care, which ends up by being routine pharmacy, routine uh, primary care. So uh, it, it's, it doesn't surprise me. It's actually truly encouraging. Um, and it shows that those who um, uh, are at the pulse you know, who really feel the pulse of the consumer on a day-to-day -day basis, get it. And, and, and that's, that's very different than uh, anything we've seen uh, even five years ago. That's a whole exciting new sector. And it's so strange, you know, Francois, just to think about what's going to transform healthcare. You know, on the one side, you do have, you know, Medicare and, you know, people don't typically think of government, federal government as, as a move and a shaker, but I, I think it's there. And, and on the other hand, you've got, you know, like you're saying the Walgreens and, and the Walmarts and the CVSs and, and now Amazon. And I think other retailers are very, very much getting into this game. And as you point out, they don't have the legacy restrictions. And uh, so it's, it's super, super exciting uh, to see that. A couple of quick rapid fire questions. Sure. So I know we talked about this a little bit, but if you had a few minutes in the Oval Office, um, and I don't know if you've been there or not already, but what would you recommend today to President Biden, to the HHS secretary, CMS administrator, any, any, if you really just had a, you know, 30, 60 seconds, what would you, you know, one, two, three, what would you request? Yeah, number one, do not let up on price transparency. Do not let up on price transparency. The fact that the industry continues to push back tells you how threatened it is. Do not push back on price transparency. Second, don't continue to encourage the systematic consolidation of providers. And payment reform doesn't just have to be about total cost of care, as we've discussed. Um, and the more you push total cost of care, the more you push consolidation in the industry, that hurts the private sector. So encouraging alternative payment models around conditions, around procedures, focused on specialty care and primary care uh, is, is uh, really what I would uh, strongly, strongly recommend. So it's those two things um, that to me become essential levers that the federal government can pull and that would make a huge difference and continue to make a huge difference to the private sector in the years to come. Now, if you're in a different room and you've got all the CEOs uh, and C-suites of the hospital systems and the insurance carriers, what, uh, what piece of advice or recommendation would you give to that group? Yeah, so look, if I had them both at the same time, I think it would be a pretty contentious uh, discussion. But I think for the hospital CEOs uh, and their CFOs, I would say, look, the days of value-based uh, care and value-based payment are here to stay. Um, and it's tough to move from this addiction to top-line revenue to patient margin. But once you embark on it with um, uh, true uh, purpose, you find it to be so freeing that you would never want to go back to uh, uh, FIFA service only. So, but you have to embrace it. And, and it's, it, it, it takes courage, uh, but have the courage because ultimately you, you, patients 
want care, they need care, and you have to stop thinking about healthcare as being centered around you and more centered around the patient. We've been talking about patient-centered care, and I know you talk about it extensively, but let's be clear, uh, care today is not patient-centric, it's provider-centric, and it's very hospital-centric. And that would be my core message is get out of your own heads because the future is not about your building or buildings. The future is about where the patient lives and works. Um, and for the carriers, I'd say, uh, you may be worried about disintermediation. You may be worried about your network blowing up. Um, uh, but if you worry too much and you stay still, uh, you may find that the biggest worry is not having done anything uh, to really push for uh, the change that's happening. Last question. You are a very different thinker and a very different doer. And uh, you have been for a long time. You've stood out uh, for me and for many others in healthcare. What makes you different? Is there, you know, is there a set of principles that underlie how you think and act? Um, what 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 are the influences on on your outlook, your orientation? Um, look, I have to say, I I I never stop thinking about the individual consumer. When I say that, I I, I never stop thinking about the the tens and tens of millions of people in in this country um, who who don't have uh, the subject matter expertise and knowledge that we have, who struggle every single day with making decisions about paying for their medicine, paying for their care and paying for their food and paying for their housing. And they shouldn't have to, and they don't have to, uh, because uh, by reforming benefit design, by reforming payment, we can finally give uh, those consumers what they need to have access to care that 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 is good um, and and doesn't cost them a fortune every single time they they, they access it. So I, I never stop thinking about that because I think you know we're privileged um, in many ways. Uh, we, we've had good education, we've had uh, professional training, we've had you know the ability to do things that many other people wouldn't be able to do. But the moment you stop thinking about that average person um, and what they go through every single day um, uh, and the choices that they have to make that they shouldn't make, you lose your sense of purpose. You got me all choked up here. So I um, just want to thank you for who you are and for what you've been doing. It's such uh, an unbelievable privilege to hear your thoughts. I've been taking copious notes as we've been talking, um, really helped me understand things a bit more, understand, you know, where we might be going and, and how we might actually get to uh, a better place in, in a realistic way and a realistic time frame. And I, I thank you for that realism and the expertise you bring to it. Um, and as I do every episode, uh, Francois, I, I conclude by thanking all the folks out there who are doing the hard work each and every day of taking care of patients or those of you who are supporting those who are taking care of patients, I and we truly appreciate you for what you do, recognize how critically important your work is to individuals, families, community, and our society. And, and Francois, you know, I have to say, hearing you talk about the providers and how uh, these packages, these episodes of care, the value-based payment, how it not only benefits, uh, most importantly, patients and their families, employees across the country, uh, you know, it also greatly uh, unlocks the value uh, uh, that's locked up in providers today, um, allowing them to do, like you said, it's not the incentive, but it's taking away all those 
disincentives and um, making it easier and truer to practice uh, the profession of medicine and to deliver the care everyone wants to deliver. So again, Francois, cannot thank you enough. Well, thank you so much for having me. Folks, this is Zeb Neuwirth on Creating a New Healthcare. My friends, until next time, be safe and be well.